to Grit, a monthly podcast focused on stories of grit and greatness from the streets to the suites. Grit is a forum for stories about people who possess uncommon work ethic, drive, and passion. They are movers, shakers, role models, overachievers who are under the radar. I'm your host, Margaret Trimmer, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships for Delta Dental of Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana. I have studied, cultivated, and curated grit over my 30-year career, including stints in the newspaper business, education, nonprofit management, and now corporate leadership. At Delta Dental, I direct corporate giving to build healthy, smart, vibrant communities for all, the places where people want to live, work, and play, places where true grit can be found. It's June. And that means it is World Refugee Awareness Month. My guest today is Vesna Cismich, a refugee from Sarajevo, Bosnia. Vesna is among the 80 million people around the world who are displaced from their homeland because of war, violence, persecution, or other emergencies. Vesna, her husband, Edin, and their young son fled Bosnia in 1995 after three years of war. They didn't know anyone in the United States who could help them, but they came here anyway. And thankfully, they found Samaritas. Samaritas is a statewide human service organization that connects people with families and communities and empowers them to live their fullest life possible. From refugees to foster children to senior citizens and the homeless, Samaritas serves more than 10,000 at-risk people every year, helping them overcome the challenges associated with poverty and trauma. Delta Dental supports Samaritas in many ways, including the annual Refugee Art Contest. The work and the stories behind the art make it one of the most powerful programs we sponsor. And it's no wonder. The stories of refugees are some of the most poignant you will ever hear. They remind you to cherish and protect peace. They remind us all not to take the simple things for granted. Vesna, welcome to GRIT. Thank you for having me. Your story is remarkable both in the tragedy and in the triumph. Why don't we start off with a description of your life in Sarajevo? Tell us about your living conditions before the war and then during the war, which lasted from 1992 to 1995. So uh, we have a good life. Uh, it was quite a different, the country where I lived uh, before the war, Yugoslavia. It was a socialistic country and it was very different from the life in the United States. However, both my husband and I, we had uh, a good job. We were both uh, engineers of telecommunication working in uh, ex-Yugoslavian. So um, life was very comfortable. We had our uh, even small business uh, that we started uh, about a year before the war. And then in 1992, the war started. Um, all the work was interrupted. Um, Sarajevo was uh, in surrounding, uh, seized. Uh, we couldn't leave the country. Um, oftentimes, actually, for the most of the part, uh, power, water, um, heating was shut off. And uh, it was difficult three years, you know, lines uh, of people waiting for water, for bread, um, grenades, snipers. 
And I remember days when I had only half a bag of macaroni in my pantry and a small child. My, my son didn't taste any fruit for three years. And it's heartbreaking, you know, a child that is in development and needs everything didn't have the basics. We were enclosed, living in Sarajevo, and that was for three years. There were no medication, no basic support, nothing. So it was horrible. I remember watching the 1984 Olympics from Sarajevo. Yes. I had yes. just graduated high school. I was in my first year at Michigan State University, and it was the first Winter Olympics held from a socialist country. And mm -hmm. it was such a beautiful city. It was such a, an exciting time. Um, but what just a few years later, the war claimed 100,000 lives and it displaced nearly 2.2 million people. I don't know that most Americans understand the Bosnian War and how it related to the fall of Yugoslavia. Can you give us a brief overview of what that war was about? So Yugoslavia fell apart and um, Slovenia was the first one to leave Yugoslavia after that, Croatia, and uh, there was, uh, you know, a war and uh, Bosnia also decided to become independent country. So that triggered um, the war between countries that were, uh, or actually states that were still in Yugoslavia. So Serbia, uh, Macedonia, and Montenegro. And um, that's something that we were unprepared for. And as you mentioned in uh, 1984, um, I, I was just the first year of college and both my husband and I, we worked at the Olympic uh, um, games and we were actually measuring time for uh, bobsled. So that was our part-time part job, part job, and that's how we met and when we met. And uh, that's where our journey continued, you know, from starting dating, attending university together, getting the first job at the same agency. That was funny. And then, you know, being together all, all this time and now ending up working at the same company again. So you are in a mixed marriage and yes. that had to be tense and difficult um during the conflict can you talk a little yes. bit about how you navigated that it was very difficult and complicated so i started dating my husband and he is muslim so that's like the whole combination of all um religion in our family and it was never a problem. We all respected each other, family members. Everyone was practicing their own religion. It's a private thing. However, it all of a sudden became the problem with the boar. And, uh, you know, for me, being Bosnian Serb that was born in Serbia in the middle of war, it was difficult. And people would sometimes look at me and, okay, what is she doing here? And uh, can they trust me? And just moving anywhere in our country, it was impossible. As a mixed marriage, you don't belong anywhere. So um, at the beginning of war, where there was a possibility to leave, we didn't leave because 
we couldn't imagine that it would last so long and it will be so horrible. Uh, and after that, I couldn't leave. So we were forced to stay where we are until 1995 where they opened so-called blue pads, then um, UNHCR, UN troops, would follow the convoy of um, mothers and young children who wanted to leave Sarajevo. That's how we left, uh, passed all three um, borders, and we fled to Croatia. Um, we lived in a small Adriatic coast city and somehow it was um, magical. You, you couldn't believe that you left all that horror. And all of a sudden you can live the normal life, something that we couldn't do for so long. So we stayed a couple of months in Croatia. We um, arrived in Croatia on March 7th of 1995. And actually stayed until September 7th of 1995 when we arrived to United States. Uh, we were hoping that war will end and we will be able to go back to Bosnia. However, there was no end of the war um, on horizon. And a neighbor of us, he said, why don't you apply for a refugee status and you go? Many countries are apply, you know, re accepting refugees. And we heard that we could apply for Canada, Australia, and United States. Uh, my husband had a family in Canada, so it was making the most sense to um, immigrate to Canada. However, I guess that yearly quota was filled and we were not eligible. Australia rejected us for unknown reasons. So the only uh, chance based on advice from UNHCR was the United States. We knew nobody in the United States. So I remember when they asked us, where do you want to go? And the map of United States was there. We said, wherever you send us. So they said, okay, you will go to Detroit. And I remember asking like, is it nice in Detroit? And they said, it's beautiful. So I said, okay, we're going to Detroit. What a journey. Now, a lot of things were going on behind the scenes that you didn't even know to mm -hmm. process your arrival and to okay. set the stage for your success. Um, and one of the first orders of business when you actually were settled was to find a job. And yes. you got lucky. And as you mentioned, you and Eden have followed somewhat parallel paths with your work. Where did you first work when you got here? And, and what was that like? So through Samaritas Resettlement and Employment Program, um, we were enrolled in English classes, walking in Amtramic every night through the evening classes. Uh, we were speaking English, but um, improvement is always good. And uh, soon after, we were eager to really start working. Um, so we moved the uh, beginning of October to Hamtramck, and we started looking for a job. So the in our country, telecom jobs were offered to the postal service. It was postal and telecom service. So naturally, we went to downtown. 
uh, thinking that must be the center of postal service. And we knocked at the door, show our diplomas and ask for a job. And they said, we don't offer telecom jobs. You might go to AT&T. And in HR, there was a line and people were applying for jobs. So we said, well, what are these people applying for? And they said, it's, uh, it's not for you. You're overqualified. That's mail sorting. So we asked, okay, so what's the pay? And the pay was $8.25 in 1995, which was almost double from the state minimum. And we said, okay, sign us up. And <laughs> they were very puzzled, but we wanted to work. We got the job. So you so, started your career in America at the U.S. Postal Service. U.S. Postal um, Service, yes. You know, there are a lot of um, jobs that American workers won't do. And a lot of the manual labor tasks that we actually look to people from other countries to, to come in and do. Um, and you came from a high status back home. And now you're working a job that was manual labor. Um, what did it feel like to have to basically start all over in your work and your career? And as you think about that starting over, do you have any words of wisdom or advice to offer young people today who are a little bit impatient about getting to the top really, really fast? You've had to cycle back and start over. Talk, talk about that. Yeah, so um, living three years in a war, it was our dream and we were so eager to start working and not depend on anyone's help. We, we didn't care what type of job it was as long as we were able to provide for our family. And uh, the job was group of three people have to unload the semi-truck within two hours. And it was a little bit shock, but we didn't care. It was manual labor, but it was well paid and it was beginning of the job. So we worked at that job for about eight months and our case managers at Samaritas, um, they recognized our hard work and we actually uh, received the offer to start working as a, as a case managers for refugees that will come in uh, 1996. So... So just yeah. a year later, you landed actual staff positions at Samaritas. Yes. And that's where you remain today. There's been a little bit of movement in and out, but Correct. you are there now. And 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 let's talk a little bit about the the resettlement work that Samaritas does and what your role is now in helping other people acclimate to this country, settle and be productive citizens. So Samaritan's new Americans programs, you know, from resettlement, uh, employment, all of that, post-resettlement, they help refugees uh, from all over the world to establish new life and actually uh, choose the, the right path. So <clears throat> I'm sorry. My first job was uh, working as a uh, resettlement case manager. So I was the person who was helping refugees before they come to find housing, to prepare everything for them, uh, work with their family members, uh, if they have family members, or become their unofficial family member as a case manager and help them uh, during the first 90 days. 
And my husband was working actually as an employment case manager. So his task was to uh, remove barriers for employment for families and place them in jobs. So at that time, and even today, um, this type of job requires uh, language skills uh, because a lot of refugees are coming without uh, English uh, language skills. And also knowing it's very important to know uh, this uh, population that is coming. So um, every population is different and just knowing how they live, what is their background, uh, culture, it's very important. So we worked like that uh, for several years. Um, I had my second son in 1999 and uh, in year 2000, my husband actually got the opportunity uh, in Samaritas IT department. And I think that his director at that time um, passed a good word to the director of IT department and he started as an IT specialist. Um, as you mentioned, your second son uh, was born here in the yes. United States. And both of your children, I would imagine, are pretty American um, in how they live and how they understand the world. Um, what do you tell them about your homeland and your history? And what is important for them to know about the journey that you and they have been on? Both my husband and I, we try to um, actually pass that Bosnian background to our children. First of all, we wanted to um, we wanted them to speak Bosnian language. We actually enforced that. And, uh, you know, my son was only four and a half when he uh, came to the United States and he didn't speak a word of English. So somehow, just through preschool and TV, he just learned English in four months. So that became his new uh, language. And obviously with friends, family members when playing, they prefer to use English language. And whenever we were present, we would say, please speak Bosnian. And that was important to us because we still have family members back in Bosnia. So, you know, they, they're Americans, they feel Americans, but they also have that Bosnians in their background and they still feel Bosnians as well. That's, that's wonderful. Um, my father was a Lithuanian immigrant and really discarded the history of his people, his country to assimilate. And it seems like you can do both. You can honor from where you've come and be a full invested American citizen. So it seems like you've found a really good balance there. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about PTSD and the fact that it is real and you don't really even know the impact of the trauma until sometimes years later when something hits you and you um, are deeply affected by it, traumatized by it all over again. Um, what are some of the lasting effects of the war for you and those things that remind you what you went through 25 years ago? I would say that all refugees have a certain level of PTSD, you know, it, uh, regardless how much they experience uh, war. Just um, 
picking up necessities, sometimes just a crawling on your back and leaving the country is traumatic enough. So when we came to the United States, I don't think we recognized issues and everyone was taking talking about OPTSD and uh, we were thinking, no, we don't have it uh, because we're fine. We are able to work. We are, we feel healthy. So I remember I was so proud to become an American citizen and I felt so welcomed in this country and I really felt as an American. So after everything settled, you purchased the home, you have a good job, your ch children went to education, and now you're coming uh, to the age when you're supposed to be more relaxed. That's when you start feeling um, more uh, PTSD. And, uh, you know, I just know that certain things were very uh, difficult for me from the day one. Uh, for instance, during the war, we didn't have a power. So we would have like little candles and I cannot stand dark in my house. My house has to be very, um, a lot of light, never a dimmed light. I cannot stand it because it makes me very nervous. Some types of sounds are also uh, bringing just uh, very unpleasant um, memories. Um, so, you know, it was, while we were pushing and fighting for the that American dream, it was not um, recognized as much as it's now. Very much so. Um, so indeed, as I mentioned early in the in the show today, it is World Refugee Awareness Month, and that is a time to acknowledge the strength, courage, and perseverance of millions of refugees who live around the globe still today. This is not a problem that's gone away. Um, <laughs> what do you think the general public should know about refugees in America, and especially during what has been a really politically difficult time around immigration issues? Mm -hmm. And immigration issues and the refugee situation are very different. Yes, yes. Um, I think that... Uh the main misconception for um, American population is to understand the difference between illegal immigrant and illegal immigrant, and among those legal immigrants, actually refugees. Refugees are uh, people that um, they're applying for life in the United States out of the country. Asylees have the similar status, but they apply from United States. So in order to be um, a refugee and apply for a settlement in the United States, you have to be out of country, your life has to be in a danger, and you cannot return to your country or you will be imprisoned or killed. So in once you satisfy all those um, requirements, you can apply. And process can go from very fast process, for instance, the whole process when I was a refugee in 1995 was six months. However, uh, especially after September 11, that process became extra lengthy, you know, between two, three years up to five years uh, for most uh, Muslim countries. And then for instance, for African countries, uh, for Democratic Republic of Congo, we have refugees that lived their whole life, generations of refugees born in refugee camps. So those refugees passed through many, many levels of background checks, health screenings, uh, 
thorough, um, you know, investigation if somebody was connected with the militant groups or whatever. So they're not double and triple checked, but many times checked. It, it's important people know and understand how arduous it is and that it is not part of the illegal immigration problem that we're struggling with at our borders. Um, so thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, you know, I named this show Grit because I believe grit is important, if not critical, to success in life. And grit is that thing that separates those who grind from those who don't. It's part of the continuum of soft, so-called soft skills, persistence, tenacity, determination, grit. Do you think you have grit? Um, I think I do, definitely. I think that I am very persistent and almost stubborn. And um, if I have a target and um, I'm, I'm going to work to succeed and um, show that I'm successful and I'm not just another person and I can make a difference for somebody else in this community. So. The, the flip side of grit, or I think a companion skill set with grit is the capacity to rebound when things don't go your way, to rebound from uh, failure. Do you have a rebound strategy when things get particularly tough, when you feel like you're not making progress or that you have failed at something? How do you pick up the pieces and keep going? I think you, you have to decide that you can always um, go from the zero and make your life. Um, I lost everything during the war. I came with nothing, literally a small backpack um, of clothing for my child. And we worked hard and there were difficult times, you know. Luckily, we never lost a job. We always had employment, but you have a car that breaks or illness or whatever um, can happen in the family and that push you back, you know. And you pick up, you stand up and you go again and you fight for life. And that's what I try to pass on my children. I think we were in a way strict parents, but we try to teach our children that it's not end of the world if you are sometimes not successful. Uh, not everything can be our way. As long as we are alive and healthy, we'll always go ahead. Powerful words. Um, thank you, Vesna. You're a powerful example of what I have always believed America is about. Uh, and thank you for listening to this episode of Grit. Next month, we will hear from a Detroit Public Schools educator about teaching and learning and keeping track of students during the pandemic. The good, the bad, and the lessons we all need to learn about schooling as we rebound. Grit. We can't seem to teach it. We know it when we see it. There's a lot we can learn from it. And that's why we talk about it here on Grit. I'm Margaret Trimmer.